Hey guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Millennial Mirrors, a discussion on millennial life in the Middle East. Our episode this week is、uh, one of the most important we are covering this season mental health.、Uh, I feel there is a big problem in the region with people stigmatizing mental health issues and not being properly educated about mental health. And I personally have been seeing a therapist now for three years, and I found it really helps me to learn to deal with different things, such as dealing with anxiety, as well as recognizing my triggers for stress and things like that. And I feel people kind of think about it as a much bigger deal than it is.、Um, and I really wanted to discuss this issue because I also feel a lot of people are suffering needlessly out of fear or lack of knowledge on the topic. So, with us today to shed some light is Dr. Naif Mutawar. Uh, an award-winning serial entrepreneur, clinical psychologist, and clinical hypnotherapist, who is the founder of the Sur Center for Professional Therapy and Assessment. You might also know him from the、uh, as the creator of the Ninety Nine, the first comic book based on Islamic archetypes. Dikta Naif, hello. Hi. It is an honor having you here with us today. I am totally fanboying on having you on、I'm、the、sorry. podcast. Thank Thanks for taking the time. I know how busy you are. Um, can you just talk to the audience just a little bit about yourself、uh, before we get started? Even though I'm pretty sure everyone knows you, but still. <laughs> sure. So、um, I'm still learning about myself.、Okay. Uh, I am.、Um, so when I was nine, I told my parents when I grew up I was going to be a writer. Okay. And they said that's a fantastic hobby. Don't think about doing it for work. <laughs> and so I was always very good at school. And so I, you know, I found myself kind of, you know, doing one degree after the other, and then age thirty, three master's degrees, a doctorate, and. Hadn't given up on my dream,、wow. and so I told my dad. I said, "You know, I'm going to do this comic book," and he said, "I told you, being a psychologist would make you go crazy." <laughs> and I said, "Dad, I got to do this. You know, I listened for you know the 30 years. I'm done.、Uh, I got, you know, I have to do it my way." And I'm, you know, it was one of the most、uh, rewarding and confusing experiences of my life, <laughs> building the 99 over 10 years.、Uh, but I learned a lot about you know myself, most、mm-hmm. importantly, but also the world in the process. That's amazing. So. Going back to the issue of of mental health, what, in your opinion, are the biggest stigmas surrounding seeking help for mental health issues in the Middle East? So I think so. The Middle East isn't a, a uniform place. So different、mm-hmm. places have different reasons.、So、I can tell you, you know, there's the macro、uh, competitive landscape between、um, what exists in terms of using religion and cultural ways of healing, and of course, people who use those. Make money off of it,、yeah. and so it's it's, it's to their incentive uh, to uh, stigmatize it because in the end, if less people see psychologists, more people see the religious guys, and they make the money.、Right. Uh, on the other hand, on the other side, psychologists and psychiatrists also obviously incentivized because it's their livelihood. So there's that tug. So on、uh, so on a bigger level, there's a, a tug of economies and mindshare.、Mm-hmm. On a more micro level,、uh, and this I can discuss in terms of Kuwait. I'm not as familiar in other places.、Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, there's been research done here by Dr. Nick Skull at the American University of Kuwait as to why is it that people have negative perception of mental health in Kuwait, and the number one reason they found is that it was interaction with a quote unquote bad mental health practitioner. Okay. Okay. Now let's take a step back as to what that means. So when I was a young young kid, half my life ago, 23, <laughs>、uh, when I graduated college, came back home, it was right after the invasion,、mm. and. Uh, the Amiri Diwan、uh, spent a lot of money and and resources educating the population about post traumatic stress、right. because it was a real thing、uh, and it still remains to be so. And so what happened is it became socially acceptable for a Kuwaiti or somebody in Kuwait to claim that their mental health issues stemmed from the invasion. Okay. Even though most of those issues predated the invasion by a decade or more. 
Wow. All right. But it became okay. Hey, it's Saddam's fault, right? Mm-hmm. Which is great because more people were able to come out and talk to therapists. The problem was it created a demand for services that weren't available. There wasn't a supply of therapists. Right. And so what happened is the ministry started giving uh, licenses to people who shouldn't have been licensed because wow. they didn't have the proper training. Okay. And so what that created was a, a pool of unqualified people, mm-hmm. uh, uneducated, really, you know, workshops, stuff like that, which had got a license. Uh, and, and so this started the interaction of people with the quote unquote bad mental health practitioner, which end up stigmatizing. And so I can tell you that a lot of the stuff, a lot, even today, like a lot of the work I do, I get people who've been elsewhere and it's, and it's, you know, some of the stories I hear, you know, I have to keep a straight face. I can't badmouth anybody because mm-hmm. it's unprofessional. At the same time, sometimes, you know, my bones curl up, you know, I was kind of thinking, what? Are you serious? That's what they said. That's what they did. So, but again, like, you know, this, so this is, so on a micro level, I can talk about Kuwait because this is where I live, where mm-hmm. I'm from. I, I don't know the dynamics within each place. I mean, I started recently in the Emirates, mm-hmm. uh, in Qatar, but I, I can't speak yet as to what the issues are there. But do you feel that there's also cultural issues in the sense that when someone, for example, has something that's like an anxiety disorder or something like that, there's a sense of you don't go see a psychiatrist for that. You only go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist if you're, you know, crazy, quote unquote. Yeah. You know, they don't they're, they're like you should just be able to handle your stress and your anxiety and those well, handle it. But also, you know, if only you had more faith. So, again, it's that it's yeah. that idea of the, you know, you know, go to the sheikh, let him make the money off this. Right. Because that reinforces that somehow, you know, you're going to get, you know, points in the in the, in the hereafter for that. There's, yeah. that. there's that whole. And the thing is, the, so it's so I don't necessarily disagree with that, because the thing is that, you know, even with all my degrees and all my training, if somebody doesn't believe I can help them, then it's probably correct. I probably won't be able to help them mm-hmm. because a big part of the process is faith in the person in front of you. Right. Right. So if my, if my, you know, if my ideology, my upbringing is about kind of, you know, using religion to heal, then chances are that person who I go to who uses religion to heal, I already have that, you know, bond. Right. Uh, and so, he may be able to help me. Now, the issue becomes here. So w- when the bombing happened in Kuwait a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. I got permission from the Ministry of Health to go and visit the people who were actually physically affected in the three hospitals. And I went around um, explaining the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And, uh, and, and there was a sheikh walking around kind of, you know, reading the Quran in each one. And, and uh, you know, and what I heard almost unanimously from pretty much everybody uh, was, you know, we're not going to get those symptoms. You know, we're, we have, you know, our faith is strong. It was Ramadan in Friday prayers, you know, we're, you know, all this. And I said, I said, that's fantastic. But if you do have symptoms of stress, which I'm sure most of them did, yeah. uh, it doesn't mean your faith is weak. You see? Yeah. So strong faith can help because yes. if you have an, if you have a, a way of understanding the world that makes sense of stuff, that are nonsensical, like somebody walking into a mosque and blowing themselves up, yeah. right? Then, then that can protect you. At the same time, it, you can't tell somebody who goes through that that their stress is because of lack of faith. Yeah. So, so it's it's it's, it's two edged. Yeah. No, I I see what you're saying there. Um, so, in in that sense, religion and religious leaders, like you said, are often the first place people go um, when they're looking for help or when they're having an issue. 
So what role do you think they need to play in the conversation about mental health? I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, and especially when it comes to religious OCD. So mm-hmm. religious OCD, so OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, can take one of several umbrellas. Mm-hmm. It can have a religious dimension. It can be sexual. It can be cleanliness. It can be checking. Or it can be something idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. Um, but religious OCD, and this is in all religions, has nothing to do with religion. It's basically the way the brain is wired. So you have them, you know, Christians, Jews, Buddhists, doesn't really matter. Okay. But within Islam, religious OCD will manifest in either, you know, when the person prays, they start being blasphemous. And so they get scared and they stop. They hear, they hear, they hear the thoughts, you know, saying bad things about God or religion or the prophet. Or it can be that they keep repeating their prayers because they're sure they missed something. Wow, okay. And so you'll find somebody doing, you know, rak'atain over an hour. Or oh, more, okay. right? And so in those cases, a lot of times what I do is I pull up YouTube and I write Wiswas Qahridini and I have them listen to a couple of sheikhs. And, and, and I, I've been very impressed because, you know, so I think in, in terms of, you know, explaining that this is, you know, this is, you, you know, you, for you, it's, you're not supposed to repeat it because, you know, you have, you know, you have something and God knows you have this. And so, you know, other people would have to repeat, but not you. So I, so I actually use some of that within the therapy. If the person is religiously inclined, right. that being said, I don't think religion is the place if the person is not religiously inclined. Because yeah. one of the issues is, like for example, one of, you know one of the one of the things like I teach I, I teach at the medical school for the past fifteen years, and one of the things I teach the students is, you know, how to ask about you know whether the person drinks alcohol or takes drugs, mm. and and I say, and the way I do it is I say, so what's your relationship to alcohol like? Right. That's how I do it, you know. Uh, and or or you know if, or sometimes like I'll, if I have a sense, I'll say something like you know. So you know when did you start drinking, right? But the students inevitably will all be like, I'm sorry, but I have to ask this, and I know you would never do this, but do you drink? <laughs> and I say, you know what? There's only one answer to that question when it's asked that way, because it's saying you know because once you bring religion into it, there's that whole guilt thing yeah. and perception, and people in the end, even if they're coming for help, they want to please, yeah, right. And so and so this is the and a lot of times like I get. An answer to a question in the first session one way, and the second session, you know, I'm sorry, but I, li- I lied about this thing, and you know, gotcha. but they have to feel like it's a safe, non-judgmental place, right. which is typically non-judgmental, typically, and especially in our region, is not something tied to religion. Right. No, Very judgmental. True. Yeah. Not religion, but the way religion is practiced. True. But do you think that that some weight lies on religious leaders and practitioners to, for example? understand when an issue can no longer be solved by faith alone and maybe then tell someone that hey you need to seek help elsewhere yes i believe so and i but i believe that i believe that the government has a role in that okay. you know because the thing is you know when you say for example here is the role that you can play mm-hmm. and here is the role where you no longer can play right and we will you know there will be consequences in this life yeah not in the afterlife okay. for you transgressing those boundaries then you'll have a society that actually kind of wakes up to that right because but if as long as you have a system where you know it, as long as religion is being used and you can't really touch that because that guy you know you know might you know might because get- then you seem blasphemous exactly. as a government official trying to put lines yeah. down yeah yeah so you think that's the role government needs to play, which is kind of putting down a, regulating. A, yeah, hey, regulating. you know, you know, it's this is fine, but this is not fine. You know, I mean, you know, you, you know, don't hit somebody with a stick because you're getting the demon out of them. You know, that ended, yeah. you know, centuries ago. Yeah, you know, yeah. so stuff like that, where it's you know, or you know, I, I had one situation where somebody came to me and they were sure that there was ain, and they went to some sheikh and and you know, at at that meeting for the first time ever, they started seeing things on the walls, and I said, you know. 
did they give you anything to drink? Yes, yes, they gave me this water that was blessed. I said, yeah, probably blessed with acid, right? So again, oh, this wow. is this is not a statement on <laughs> yeah. all people, yeah, yeah. but some people, even in my profession, mm-hmm. some people will take advantage of the person who needs help. And, yeah. and you see, even in the United States, you'll have people who are licensed and they'll still take advantage. So, so it's a human thing. But the thing is, the more you have uh, things in place to punish this behavior, mm-hmm. the less likely it's going to happen. Okay. And in terms of, I guess, even for practitioners, what role do do you think government has in uh, regulating, I guess, confidentiality, um, the kind of medications that are used, things like that? Uh, because I know that it's not necessarily that regulated um, in some places in the region. So again, I can talk about Kuwait. Kuwait yeah. yeah. So so in Kuwait, you have a couple of issues. Mm-hmm. So the psychiatrists are all very good. I mean, they're, you know, they're trained. They, they you know went to medical school. They you know people might have different opinions about their experiences with different psychiatrists, but that's a personal thing. But they're all they all have the right credentials, mm-hmm. as far as I know. You know. Um, when it comes to psychologists, counselors, there's a very blurry line. So, for example, a license for somebody who's a life coach will be mm-hmm. the same as a psychologist. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. So, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist trained in New York's hospitals, you know, went to an Ivy League school. Somebody gets a one-month certificate, it's the same license. Oh, wow. Up until two years ago. Okay. So, so two years ago, the government made a move, which is, which I'm glad happened. I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it didn't happen five years ago for personal reasons. Okay. And this is why. So, so two years ago, the government started allowing psychiatrists to hire psychologists. Okay. Okay. But not psychologists to hire psychiatrists. All right. Got it? So, so what that means is a lot of the psychiatrists will now start to refer less because they have, they're building their own teams of psychologists. Okay. Okay. So, so the good thing about that in the market is it's going to strangle some of the ones that shouldn't be practicing. Now, at the same time, it's going to, it's going to affect us. Uh, but I'm glad it happened now, not five years ago, because at this point, kind of, you know, I'm a known entity. So mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not as concerned. Right. Um, but this regulation now, about kind of having the Ministry of Health checking credentials, I mm-hmm. think is a fantastic move, but it should be on psychologists in every clinic, not just the ones working for psychiatrists. Ah, oh, I see. Yeah, right? Yeah. So so I'm for regulation, and I went through the regulation. I mean, I'm licensed in New York, in, in Dubai, in Doha, in Qatar. And all of those took several months. They checked to the universities. They checked with my supervisors at the hospitals. They gave exams in Dubai and New York that mm-hmm. I had to pass to get licensed. In Kuwait, they check your heartbeat, make sure you're breathing, and they give you the license. Seven years since getting your bachelor's in anything. Oh, wow. In anything. You have a workshop, but now things are changing. This mm-hmm. is when I got the license. So, so I'm hoping that, you know, so over the next couple of decades, less of this happens. But that being said, you keep hearing things about, you know, fake certificates and fake degrees. And mm-hmm. so, inshallah khair. And what about educating, I guess, the masses on mental health issues and stuff like that to kind of... Because I know there is a big aspect of shame. There's a big aspect of, uh, no, don't, you know, you don't need this. Just deal with your issues yourself. And, and a lot of kind of the stigmas that are associated depending on where you are and who your family is and all that kind of stuff. So what about, I guess, educating the masses and things like that? What could a gov- government do to help in those situations? So what's been happening is that there's been a couple of campaigns like Taqabbal here in Kuwait. I know there's one in, in, there's one in Qatar um, mm-hmm. and there's one in the Emirates that I'm aware of. Um, 
there's one on drug drug, drug prevention. Drugs are a huge problem in Kuwait. Yeah. Um, and so and so um, so I know there's campaigns. So funding these NGOs that are doing that work, I think, is a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it's, it's tricky for the government to do it directly, uh, right. but I think going through you know the different people who are actually doing that, um, and 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 you know one of the biggest kind of issues I've struggled with. Um, you talk about confidentiality, right. uh, so so I'm I'm licensed in New York, right? And mm-hmm. Dubai, whatever. But New York is I mentioned New York because New York, you know, I I, I prize that license very much and. One of the important things is about keeping confidentiality. And so I have my license up, you know, you know, in the front of the clinic. And I tell my clients, I say, if you have any concerns, call up the APA in New York and tell them we have this concern and they'll investigate and they'll pull my license. And I'm very clear about that because that's not something that's protected. But even in the U.S., it's not, it's not illegal, mm. right? but it's unethical and you could lose your license. But I don't think, I don't think you can go to jail. Right. So I'm not sure how that works exactly. I, but, 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 uh, but I think is huge, and here in this culture, it's not so well respected, and that's and that becomes an issue. Well, I think yeah, I think that's definitely a worry a lot of people have, um, especially if you're in a very small community like Kuwait or like Qatar or wh- where have you, and you you go to someone, and you don't know whether they're or or not they're necessarily going to then go and like share whatever you said in your session with someone else, and it only takes. I mean, you, there's one degree of separation between everyone and Kuwait, pretty much. You know what I mean? So things can spread very, very quickly. And I think that's a big worry that some people might have. It, it's actually more complicated. So, so you know, when you like, like in, in my in my in my work, you know, sometimes and I, you know, I've I've mastered the art of the straight face. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I, I'll, somebody will come in and tell me a different version of a story I would have heard a week before. Okay. And I'll and I, and it'll click. I have that person's brother, their sister, their mother, like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's fascinating because, because, but you also have to kind of be very, very ethical. See, the issue is, so in the US, for example, there are so many licensed professionals mm-hmm. that when you're in a situation like that, you can tell the person, you know, you're probably better off with, you know, somewhere else. There's a conflict. There's conflict. Here, I don't do that as much. And I don't do that as much because where am I going to send them? Okay. You know, so, so, you know, are there, I mean, we're not, I mean, there, there, there are like three, four centers in Kuwait that I trust, mm-hmm. but that's it. Okay. You know, there's like over a hundred that I don't. Uh, and, and so, and so, so sometimes when it's appropriate, but then again, you know, I'm the only, you know, that I'm aware of Kuwaiti male clinical psychologist, right? That's licensed. So, so, you know, so, so, you know, but going back to government regulations and medications, so there are some psychologists, mm-hmm. um, I know of one that has a relationship and I hear this from my patients, has a relationship with a pharmacy. And so he'll write the medication and the pharmacy gives the medication. That's illegal. It's unethical. It shouldn't be happening, right. but it's happening. So there's one, there's one name that keeps recurring to me from my clients. Uh, there's another one that that I know that you know they don't actually do the prescription, but they will. They have a relationship with a family doctor. They'll call them up and say, "Prescribe this." So mm-hmm. that's so that's unethical, but it's not illegal because the doctors actually are the prescription. Oh, uh, okay. Right. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so and stuff like and and the more stuff like that that happens, the more mental health has a bad name because inevitably, they're not going to know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, which actually brings me to another point. What it because I have I know people who are using doctors like that. Hmm. Um, so what is a good perspective to have on mental health? Because I know some people who take it 
to a completely other extreme where they either depend on their psychologist or their therapist for like everything and they won't make a single life decision without kind of consulting them or they use their them as a drug dealer basically and they go and they just kind of they're just for a prescription top up without actually trying to work on any of their issues and and i guess whatever they're dealing with so what kind of what perspective is a healthy perspective and what do you, what dosage i guess works for so so i so i can't judge mm-hmm. but i can tell you how i do it so for me you know with my experience i know i've interacted with all the psychiatrists in kuwait and mm-hmm. i know the ones that will give you prescriptions within 2 minutes and i know the ones that won't and sometimes won't give you anything mm-hmm. right and so 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 i'm so I, i'm not, so when somebody comes to me and they have a psychiatrist you know, if they're comfortable with them, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I never, I never say, okay, try this one because mm-hmm. that's the most important thing. But, um, if somebody is first time seeing a psychiatrist, I'm more likely to refer to somebody that I know won't necessarily give the medication. Right. But for me to send somebody for medication, right? Because I'm very conservative. Uh, so I'll see on average, you know, yesterday I had 16 clients, typically between 12 and 18, depending on the day. Mm-hmm. And of them, I'll send maybe 15, 20% to see a psychiatrist. My rule is that if your symptoms are interfering with your functioning, you can't get out of bed, you can't go to work, you can't be a father to your kids, you can't be a husband to your wife, you can't be a, a son to your mother, you just you, you can't function, you can't mm-hmm. leave the house, you, you get into fights, you're losing your relationships, you're crying all the time, say, yeah. take the meds for six to nine months, we'll do the therapy, and then you know what you like on meds, and then you talk to your psychiatrist. We come off the meds, and by then you'll at least be able to be able to live with the symptom. Right. And you decide: I want to live with it. I want to live without it. Hmm. But for, for for most people, as good as it gets is kind of coming to terms with: I'm going to have this issue. Like OCD is a lifelong sentence for most people, right? right? So so teaching people to kind of how to coexist with their OCD. Hearing voices for some people. I've helped people. I can't make voices go away. Mm-hmm. But, but I can help people not be as disturbed when they hear them. Right. Right? So 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 stuff like that. So for me, that's the rule. You know, in terms of depending on, you know, I have clients. So most of my clients, uh, so most of my clients will come to me and I use mostly cognitive behavioral therapy now. Mm-hmm. 50% of my clients. 30% hypnosis, 20% psychodynamic, which is, I love psychodynamic. It's, it's how I was trained. I... I love it. But the psychodynamic, the issue with that is typically it's a lot of sessions over many years. You get to know yourself really well. But but chances are that if you went to a good CBT therapist, then within six to eight sessions, you should have the basic tools to kind of go forward. Mm-hmm. And so what I tell my clients who come in and say, you know, I want to know why I have this problem. I'll say, you know, that's a fascinating philosophical discussion. How about we get you out of it? And then if you still have the time and money to discuss it, you know, knock yourself out. Right. Most of them, don't come back after it's better. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. But some will want to continue having what you talked about, kind of you know, having their therapist there for every decision. I have a few like that. And my rule with them is basically, okay, but when I can, not when you want. Mm. Right? So it's yeah. typically an early morning appointment or a late night appointment on the way to work, on the way back from work, on the phone. But I won't give up my middle day for somebody who just wants me and doesn't need me because there's a lot of people who actually need uh, help. Okay. And if you're someone who's now deciding to look for uh, for a therapist or a psychiatrist, how do you kind of, what recommendations would you give to someone who's now decided they want to seek help? 
what kind of steps should they go through in terms of deciding psychiatrist, psychologist, what it, what they're doing, all that kind of stuff. So, so if 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 they're open, I would talk to friends and family mm-hmm. and see who they've seen, uh, and because that's always a good, you know, like for example, more than eighty percent of my clients are preferred by people who've seen me. Right. Um, that's always a good indication because you know you because you, you, some people need a psychiatrist from day one like if you're hearing voices you know if you know if you can't sleep at night if you are so depressed can't get out of bed if you you know you, you need to be stabilized so mm-hmm. i so you can come to a psychologist first but if they're a good psychologist they're going to say go see a psychiatrist come back in a couple of weeks once you stabilize because the first couple of weeks on meds usually your symptoms increase they don't decrease mm-hmm. right so okay. you have to kind of level so, so anybody tells you take meds come back next week is not doing you a favor right okay so 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 if it's so the rule is basically so you have the psychiatrist I would go to first if it's interfering with my functioning mm-hmm. okay I'd go to a clinical psychologist based on you know if it's if it's if it's a, a problem that's 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 psychiatric in nature but not necessarily one that needs medication so it's not interfering with my, my functioning but you know I don't know what's going on I'm really feeling down all the time I'm you know I'm getting anxious I'm getting panic attacks not mm-hmm. sure what if it's, you know, a family matter, you can go to a clinical psychologist or a counseling psychologist. Right. Right. Uh, if it's an, if it's an education matter, you know, that your child is not focusing in school, is not, you know, is being disobedient, is only, is only not following the rules at school, but following the rules at home. Right. You know, I would go to an educational psychologist. Okay. Right? So it depends on what the issue is. Uh, but I would, you know, but in Kuwait, I would definitely check the person's degree. Mm-hmm. I would check where they're licensed and make sure that they're licensed outside of Kuwait. Okay. Okay. And there are quite a few of us who are. Okay. okay. It's not, it's, so there's quite a few. And there's, uh, so, so, and the reason for that is because the licensing and credentialing in Kuwait, if you're not working for a psychiatrist, doesn't exist. Okay. Okay. Now, if you're in other places in the GCC, so in, in Saudi, they have the opposite problem of Kuwait. In Saudi, to open a, to open a center, you have to have a PhD in clinical psychology, which is what I have. Okay. So it's good for me. Right. It's not good for Saudi. Right. Because right. it's going to be too tough for it too to tough. get enough. Yeah. yeah. You don't have enough people. And that's why Riyadh has one clinic. Oh, wow. Okay. okay? So it's a great opportunity. Uh, but, but, uh, so, and there they, they're very, very strict. Dubai and Qatar do it. I mean, they're right in the middle, right? So they say, you know, give me your credentials. Where are you licensed outside? You know, we need a letter from the Ministry of Interior in your country. You need a letter from a Ministry of the Ministry of uh, Health. All this they want. They check with the schools. Mm-hmm. So in those countries, it's about kind of meeting the right therapist for you because they're all properly credentialed and licensed. Okay. Right. Whereas here, I'd be kind of a bit pickier. So you mentioned a point about getting, you know, maybe talking to your family or your friends, but. What advice do you have for people who may want to kind of seek mental um, help for their for a mental health issue, but you know they they come from a family that doesn't really believe in it and that's closed off from it? How do you kind of advise them to broach that subject or kind of have that conversation? Or well, I mean, th- this family really have to know. I okay, mean, so you know, if you're over twenty one, you really don't need a, you really don't need a family involved. Um, uh, because in the end, it's see, I mean, one of the things that you know really kind of uh, this one case that, that in my mind where you know I'd seen the person for a while and and uh, and uh, they seemed okay you know and then I didn't see them for a while and then they came back and when they were talking to me I I, I didn't, couldn't recognize them and I asked because it seemed like they were on something and 
they went to a psychiatrist, gave them this really strong medication, and I was furious, and I called the psychiatrist, and I, you know, I was very passive-aggressive, and I said, you know, what did I miss? Please tell me, because I'm sure I make mistakes, I'm human, what did I miss? And the, and the psychiatrist told me stuff I didn't know, that that person and that person's family, when they came to me, should have told me about family history of certain stuff mm. that, that they had as well, but they didn't tell me. And so when they didn't come back for a while, I thought, you know, they're better. In fact, they were worse. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, and so, and so stuff like that where, you, you know, it's very important that if you, not to compartmentalize information. That if you're going to go to somebody, you tell them everything so they're yeah. able to help. And families sometimes get in the way of that. And I've seen that happen quite a few times where, hey, but my seal, and then, and then it's like you just get one part of it. Right. And you kind of have to kind of dig around to get the rest. And sometimes you don't get it. And that ends up hurting the person, not right. helping them. So it's important if you're going to seek help to kind of be open and, and be honest because at the end of the day, that's what you need in order to help someone. But that's going to, but it's going to take some time building trust with that person. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And what about if it's the other way around where, you know, if you see a family member or a friend who obviously needs to seek help, uh, but they don't see it for themselves, how do you broach that subject? It's tough. It's tough. I mean, I just counseled somebody uh, a while back, some while back to, to call the police. And they did, finally. Oh wow! You okay. know, and so and because see, in Kuwait, the, the issue is unless the police takes you to the mental health hospital, you can say I don't want to stay, no matter what your problem is. Okay. If you're over 21, it's against the law, which it is, which which they're trying to change now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but but uh, but I mean, some people and some and some issues, like for example, some people are, you know, who have paranoid thoughts and stuff. It's you know. The, I've had people who they come to me, then I become part of the conspiracy, right? So it's, so there's really there's some people you really need to be on meds and some people kind of you know end up any being forced into it and even that you know how do you force meds into somebody so sometimes there are you know some options which are injectable and so it becomes it becomes a little bit messy but that's that world i you know i left when i left the hospitals of new york now right. you know, my world is not about, about that anymore but what about like someone who's not necessarily to that extreme where you need to call the police on them but they're just you know they're depressed they're down they're not getting out of bed those kinds of things and you're trying to kind of get them out of it what advice do you have for people I mean, I, 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 so so some people just won't do it. Like I've had I've had that same people come in. You know, I have my brother, my sister, my mother, some. And the thing is that there's there's only so much you can do if they're not willing to help themselves. You can't help them. I mean, and that's that's the bottom line. You know, that's that's the they, it has to come from within them. Okay. So I think that kind of wraps it up in terms of mental health and seeking mental health and getting mental health um my my next question would be things not necessarily related to mental health because we just have a few questions that we ask at the end of the podcast um one is about our culture so millennial mirrors talks a lot about kind of culture and being part of that and what do you take from it and what do you leave uh so one of the questions is what part of our culture that you've grown up in um do you love and carry with you always that's a good question you know, there's a lot and there's a little. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, for me, culture has always been defined by an intersection of cultures. It's never been kind of, you know, I wasn't somebody who grew up in Kuwait and then, you know, all of a sudden went to the States for school. Right. You know, I'm somebody who spent 
three months of every year since I was eight at a summer camp in New Hampshire. I'm somebody who, um, you know, was always kind of cultural interchange. So it's very hard to say, you know, very hard to kind of pick out culture. For me, uh, my personal culture is one of, you know, I'm very academically oriented in terms of, you know, education. Uh, I, I'm very, um, uh, very, very strong work ethic, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and so I guess, and, and I, and I get, I get, I get a little bit confused by my culture sometimes. Okay. You know, I get confused by kind of the, you know, the idea of having a job, not doing anything at your job and going home at two, it really confuses me. Um, and, and that's why, like, for example, like I, 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 you know, I, like during Ramadan, like I work from 9am till 2am. I take a two hour break for the gym and for like I work. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember like I made a comment to somebody a couple of years ago saying, you know, I actually enjoy Ramadan in New York more than I do in Kuwait because when I'm working in New York, I don't feel like I'm crazy. Everybody's working during right. Ramadan, right? It's here. So for me, it's, it's always been kind of, you know, defining culture as an amalgam, not mm-hmm. just, um, not just kind of, you know, you know, Kuwait or GCC or, um, not judging it, you know, I, I, I did decide to come back here, uh, mm-hmm. though, you know, I, you know, kicking and screaming, <laughs> you know, yeah. I remember my mother was, was worried I wasn't going to come back. And I had a call from a relative saying, you know, you can go from being a big fish in a small pond to a small fish in a, sorry, a small fish in a big pond to a big fish in a small pond. And I said, that's great. What do I become the dead fish in the desert? Then what? <laughs> you know, right. but, uh, but I think, you know, so I, and it's 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 kind of it's kind of you know there's some parts of my culture that you know without kind of being explicit I I don't believe in mm-hmm. uh, which is why I sent my kids to boarding school for high school in the states right. um, and but even then there are some things that for example I didn't raise my kids to do that when they don't do them even though I didn't raise them to do them even though I may not say to them it bothers me on some level because there's some things that are ingrained in you just by virtue of you know drinking the Kool Aid. Yeah, yeah. Versus stuff that you actually believe in, and it's very kind of tough to uh, to tease. But um, yeah. So in terms of our cultures, because this actually kind of just reminded me of something. You know how when we when the the happiness index comes out, Kuwait is always kind of like ranked quite yeah low, and you know a few of the other places in the in the region are also ranked quite low. What do you think is happening there? So I think I think uh, there, I think there's a few things. I, I think, mm-hmm. I say, number one, uh, and this actually the government has become much better at the past couple of years. I hope is Kuwait's a place where you have all these rules mm-hmm. that nobody follows. Okay. Right. And the number one rule in terms of security is knowing that that there are certain things that'll happen to you if a a b c. Right. So so the environment is secure. Now you'll find that countries that don't do that. Will gravitate towards religious extremism, right? Mm-hmm. Because if the if the constitution isn't being followed, then God's constitution will be. And so you'll see this kind of behavior, you know, in Kuwait, in Saudi now maybe less in Saudi because they're they're taking a, you know a stronger hold there. You know, in Pakistan, that's where you're going to find it, right? right? And so that's going to inevitably feed back. So so you know stuff like you know you have the high rise in Kuwait looking over a cemetery. 
Yeah. That's kind of a little bit depressing, right? So <laughs> My office <laughs> looks over a cemetery, you're right. You know? Yeah. So, so stuff like that where it's kind of like, you know, th- th- there's more, there's, you know, a lot of emphasis on death and the afterlife versus life and productivity. Mm-hmm. You know, that stuff which I think can be easily changed, right? Because right. the issue is not religion. The issue is on what parts do I focus on in the religion, right? Because yeah. the religion has a lot of, you know, things that are positive and forward-looking and happiness-making in this life as well, not just the afterlife. So that's part of it. Um the other part there i mean there is there is this there is this you know you know st- stuff that happened here happened you know, in terms of money happened quickly mm-hmm. uh happened without effort in the beginning right uh and and uh and uh and there's this culture that was perpetuated so people need to feel i mean need to feel like they're productive and giving something not right. just getting something and if you get something without giving something it, it creates a discomfort. Right. Even in monkeys. Yeah. Okay. And there's lots of studies on this, right? So people need to feel like there's an equal playing ground, you know, not, you know, this, this wasta thing and, you know, this, I'm, I'm getting, he's getting that because of his family. And he, that, you know, that really creates an issue for people to feel like they're stuck in their place and there's nothing, it's not a meritocracy. Right. Right. And if you have a meritocracy, you'll have people, you, I mean, you, will some people still not get, make it? Of course they will, but they'll know they did the best they can. Right. Right. And that's not, you know, what's, what's that's happening. That's what's happening. Yeah. But that's something that, you know, you can blame the culture for it and get depressed. Mm-hmm. Or you can create your own culture, which is which is what I've chosen to do for myself and hopefully for my children that, you know, I, you know, that stuff bothers me. But but the way I'm going to change it is by changing myself. I'm not going to sit there complaining. No, I completely agree. I think that's something that I always discuss with my friends. I'm like. We've grown up in a situation where we suddenly have so much just kind of handed to us and you lose so much of your drive. And so you have, and we all know these people who kind of are just sitting there with what was handed to them and they don't feel the need to do anything because of course it's just handed to them. But then you see them, they kind of get depressed. They're in a rut. They're not really doing much. They're feeling down. They're not happy. But then again, if if you don't have, if you don't feel like you have a purpose, if you don't feel like you have a reason to get up in the morning, then what are you even doing? You know what I mean? So, so no, I completely uh, agree with you on that point. Um, so in terms of, I guess, the culture that you create around yourself, how do you create that culture around yourself? You know, I just, I make sure that, you know, at least for my kids, like, mm-hmm. you know, they, you know, for a long time in the beginning, you know, I, you know, you know, I triple majored in college, did three master's degrees, and did my, I did a lot of degrees, and and all of which I did. I didn't buy any of them, by the way. <laughs> um, but 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 uh, you know, for a long time I put them in my drawer. I didn't put yeah. them up on the wall. And the reason I didn't put them up on the wall is I didn't want to feel my I didn't want my kids to feel the pressure to do the same, mm-hmm. because on some level I realized that part of my drive is God given. It's not something that I chose. And the reason I know that is because I tried to slow down <laughs> 10 years okay. ago and I couldn't. Okay. Uh, I thought I wouldn't. And it, and it occurred to me that I didn't really have a choice. Uh, I mean, I could have, I mean, the choice could have been to use my energy for destructive purposes, right? Mm. But, but, but that's not, that's not what I did. And so, so for me, it's, it's more about kind of, I, you know, I do my work. I, I have my, I have my eye on kind of my objectives. Uh, and, and I just roll the punches. And I think, you know, the biggest, you know the biggest kind of uh, 
indicator for that is kind of what happened with the 99. I mean, mm. I don't know if you if you followed the story to the end and know about the lawsuit that was against me for blasphemy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I won. Uh, the court proved I believe in God. How? I'm not sure, but they did it. Uh, but, but that was a funny year and a half uh, yeah. of, you know, and... and uh, but, you know, but for me, you know, what I said in the closing comments of the case, I said to the judge, I said, I'm proud of what I did and I'm going to do it again. Uh, and, and, and I am doing it again. I have something launching at the end of in Jan, hopefully, which is uh, incorporating uh, religion with hypnosis okay. uh, in my own kind of way. And, and, um, and I know I'm going to get into the same roadblocks again. But for me, what drives me uh, is, you know, I'm somebody who, until the age of 30, was like everybody else, complaining, this is how Islam is being portrayed and Islam. Then I was like, you know, why are you complaining? Why don't you become part of the people who changes that culture? Mm. And that's when I kind of said, you know, let me go back to the same place that the bad guys, the extremists, are pulling their messages and link to it positive messaging. Because if I can do that, then the problem is not Islam anymore. It's their interpretation. And that's how the 99 was born, right? right? And so, so you know, you can love it, you can hate it, but you can't say it's not made out of the same fabric. And so that's what drove me. Uh, and I did that for many years until I hit my little political roadblock. Okay. Uh, and the irony in that is in the middle of my lawsuit here, Sheikh Mohammed gave me the Islamic Economy Award for Media in Dubai <laughs> for the same project that's being yeah. sued for here. But the nice thing here is after the lawsuit ended, the government actually put me on the Supreme Education Council. Uh, and on the on the on the investment committee of the the national fund, so that was their way of support. Um, you know, because the bad guys were like, "Don't let them affect my our kids' thinking." Okay, the, the government said, "Okay, we'll put them on the Supreme Education Council." <laughs> I like that. Uh, so that was that was so nice. That, out, yeah. that was nice. It worked out. But but uh, but um, uh, so so for me, my you know my message has always been, you know, I believe in an Islam my way, right. uh, not your way. Not anybody's way, my way. Mm -hmm. And that's the drum I've been following for as long as I can remember, since I was 19, actually. And, and so, and so the 99 was an expression of that. Uh, my, my app coming up is going to be an expression of that. And that's, that's, that's the culture I want to form where it's, where it's more of a, you know, because Islam in its heyday, uh, the, the scholars weren't just scholars that knew one book. Right. Scholars were physicists and astronauts, not astronauts, but astrophysicists and, and medical doctors. That, True. And, and that's where Islam came up. Where Islam went downhill is when they only kind of focused on one thing. Right. Right. So I believe that there's a need for an eclectic kind of, you know, I think that Islam should be the backbone, but the flesh needs to be populated with other things so we can go forward and not go backward. That's actually a really, really interesting point. Um, which I'm now going to jot down in my head as a topic for next season to kind of go really in, deep, yeah. in depth in that because I think that's a really interesting topic to discuss. So in building that culture around you, what is the quality you most value in the people you keep around you? People who can do anything. People who are smart. Mm -hmm. and, it's not, and oftentimes much smarter than I am. And, and I'm okay with that. Um, you know, when I built the 99, I took it from an idea in a cab to a thousand people on four continents. You know, wow. because it was, it was, it was, a, it was a big, big project. And, you know, and, and understanding your limitations. I mean, like, for example, you know, when I started the 99, it was about going back to writing. But then, you know, everyone's like, you know, great stories, great stories. And I'm thinking, at one point I was like, yeah, but I'm paying you your salary. What are you going to say to me? Yeah. And so I took myself out of writing. Just, I made an excuse. Oh, you know, I'm tired, whatever. And, Guess what? The stories that the team came up with were so much better than mine. Wow. Okay. And I was like, okay, ding, ding, time to take yourself out. And so I started focusing on other things. Mm -hmm. So being able to kind of 
you know, know what you're good at and know what you're not good at. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not perfect at that. I still, you know, sometimes maybe doing stuff I shouldn't be doing, but, you know, I'm human. But kind of realizing that and then keeping people, you know, who, like, for example, my team now at the tour center, the, 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 the back office is my same people from the 99. I kept them. Okay. I kept them even though for the first couple of years, I was bleeding cash to pay on their salaries, but I didn't want to let go because because they knew how I worked. They knew, and I'm not I'm not the easiest person to work with. Okay, right. So so I needed kind of people who were loyal, who uh, were okay questioning me, were okay kind of pushing back, you know, because I can fill up the room sometimes and people get intimidated. But then I'm the one that gets hurt because I didn't hear that opinion that would right. have mattered to me. Yeah, yeah. that makes yeah. sense. And the last question uh, is, what makes you happy? Being productive makes me happy. Uh, you know, being able to kind of work, being given the opportunity to learn. Um, you know, every few years I go back to learning something new. Um, five years ago I decided to new, two new things, CBT and, uh, and hypnosis, and I'm now certified by both hypnosis schools, the big ones. And then CBT, um, there's only two people in the region that have my level of uh, of training the other person works for emirates airlines oh wow okay. and it's interesting because yeah, i went to kuwait airways trying to explain to them they looked at me like i was speaking chinese i'm like <laughs> okay uh but uh but so and and now uh six months ago I, eight, eight months ago i started a new program to become a certified uh sex therapist okay uh, licensed sex therapist sorry uh and and i did that because i had a quite a few challenging cases that i didn't i could help some i couldn't help all and i didn't have the tools and i thought let me learn. And mm. so, so I like that. I like learning new things. <clears throat> I like, you know, investing in myself. Uh, and I like, you know, being a role model to my kids. And, and one of the things that, you know, I told them when the first episode of the 99 aired in India, we were on Cartoon Network throughout Asia, but I was with them in a the theater in India. And, and I told them at the end of that, uh, episode, I said, Baba, the one thing I want you to learn from this is anything is possible. Anything. You know, I'm somebody who, you know, hadn't really written, you know, for an audience before like that, hadn't done TV, hadn't, hadn't raised that much money, none of that. Mm -hmm. And yet here it is. And that's because, you know, I, I had the passion, I had a drive. And I think the most important thing, uh, for me is finding, you know, for me, like in, in raising my kids, what made me happy was making sure that they each had a passion. I didn't care what the passion was. One of them likes right. bugs. You know, I mean, okay. it really doesn't matter what the <laughs> yeah. but passion is very important. And so my kids make me, my family makes me happy. Um, but, but being in an opportunity to always be able to reinvent myself and learn new things and, and, uh, and spread that knowledge all makes me very happy. That's an amazing answer. Thank you. Okay. So that's all our questions. Um, thank you so much, Dick Tonai, for joining us here today. Um, it's been an amazing topic and I am hoping a lot of people will get a lot out of it. Um, and hopefully we can do another episode in season two and discuss different things because I think it's going to be, uh, we can do a lot more interesting topics, uh, together. Uh, where can people find out more about you online? So online, you can go to my website, which is almutawa.com. Mm -hmm. So al-mutawa.com. That's so it's how I spell my name. My email is my first name at my last name.com. So okay. naif, N-A-I-F. Um, on Instagram and Twitter, it's Dr. Naif, D-R-N-A-I-F. Um, and that 
pretty much. Uh, and then any Google search will bring all kinds of you know blasphemous stuff against me. If you, if you <laughs> so we'll put the legitimate links in the episode <laughs> description. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Uh, we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever you're listening to this. Uh, also, please leave a comment. Let me know what you think. And if you have any questions or if there are any subjects or topics that you think we should cover. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mishari Alanese. Uh, links for myself and Dikto Naif will be in the episode description. Bye, guys, and stay safe. Thank you.